Amen. What a blessing God's Word is to us. And let me have you take your Bibles and open them up this morning uh, to the book of Isaiah and to chapter 9. While you're turning, if you're one of those who pay, actually pay attention to sermon titles, you'll probably, probably be either a little confused by a Latin title for our sermon this morning, or perhaps you recognize this phrase, uh, post tenebras lux, as a slogan from the 16th century Reformation. That slogan, that motto, uh, which being translated means after darkness, light, it was used to point at that time to God's gracious revealing of the light of the true gospel after centuries of darkness and corruption that had fallen on the church uh, in Rome. And so that phrase became a cry, a slogan of the Reformation, post tenebras lux. But this morning I'm using that phrase to entitle our look at what John, the gospel writer, speaks of as the true light who was coming into the world. Now, as a, a Christmas or a pre-Christmas sermon, we might expect our text to be from Matthew 1 or Luke 2. But, of course, that's not where the promises concerning the coming of the Messiah uh, began, is it? We know that as far back as the Garden of Eden that God had promised that the seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. And we know that we can go to many places in the Old Testament, to books written thousands of years before the incarnation of the Son of God and the first Christmas and find those promises of the coming Messiah. This morning we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. We'll read the first seven verses. And those, of course, are among the most well-known verses in Isaiah, especially at this time of year, as they are a clear prophecy of the coming of Christ, which we celebrate. So follow along as I read just the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that as we have it read and and preached in our hearing, that it would be of profit to us. We pray that you would help us to, as Christians, just rejoice in what we hear written so long ago, but such a a clear uh, picture of him who was to come. We pray that you would bless our time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we read that passage this morning, and like I said, it's a very familiar passage. You see it on Christmas cards at times. In fact, I think you saw it uh, on the announcements page of our bulletin. Uh, we had that scripture printed. And though many people recognize verse 6 and perhaps verse 7, often they don't know much about the context of, of the setting of this passage. And maybe you don't either. We don't often think about the first part. We just think about those two verses. So let's take just a moment at the beginning of this and set this up for you. What's going on? Because just as, and we'll see this next week, just as the birth of Christ doesn't happen in isolation from a historical context, neither do the promises concerning his birth in the Old Testament. And this is just one example. As Isaiah writes this, of course, it is the time of the divided kingdom, the northern tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Judah. And by the time Isaiah comes on the scene as a prophet, particularly to Judah, is about 739 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was just years now from being destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And the situation here, as we come to Isaiah chapter 9, 8 and 9 actually, is that the southern kingdom under King Ahaz has come under attack by an alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and the nation of Syria. And these two had come together against Jerusalem. They had attacked the city. But Isaiah... Of course, a prophet of God had come to Ahaz and had told him at the Lord's command not to worry about this, to go up against them, to go ahead and go into battle against them, to fight against them, and that they would defeat, that Judah would defeat this alliance of Israel and Syria. But Ahaz didn't trust God, and so he decided he needed to do what a king would do and and figure out some way to protect his people. Not thinking of going to God, he went instead, of all places, to the Assyrians for help. He paid them for their help. And Isaiah, in chapter 7, prophesied about this and told Ahaz, you know, Ahaz, you're going to be punished for your lack of faith in God, for your um, not listening. And in a classic case of sort of be careful what you wish for, Isaiah tells him that the king of Assyria indeed will come. Isaiah 7.17 talks about that. The Assyrian army will come, but not only are they going to defeat Israel and Syria, but that they will then attack Judah as well. Israel will be destroyed. Judah will be attacked by Assyria, and ultimately they will be destroyed by the Babylonians. Darkness 
Dark times are coming. Darkness in Israel, darkness in Judah, the Davidic kingdom conquered, God's people taken away. And as you come uh, to read Isaiah chapter 8, there is some of this uh, described and an idea given as, as to the darkness. In fact, if you look at just the end of it for right now, verse 22 says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is a prophecy of gloom and doom. All due to the evil, all due to the the faithlessness of God's people. And God has warned his people all along of this type of thing, warn them of the consequences of, of not trusting God, of not following God, of rejecting God. He sent his prophets to warn them over and over and over. If you continue to reject me, I will reject you and I will drive you out of the land. But they persisted. And so we have this prophecy. But all is not bad news. As always, even in times of people here, God's people experiencing the, the punishment that they deserve, the punishment of God, the sharp edges of those, those prophecies are always sort of smoothed off or rounded off by promises of blessing that will come, which remind us, ever and always, of God's faithfulness of his faithfulness to his promises, his graciousness to sinners, and his provision for their salvation. Let me set this up a little more by just reading a little bit here from from chapter 8. I'll read starting in verse 11. It says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, that's Isaiah speaking, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And then skipping down again to verse 22, he says, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. A statement there at the end, particularly, of the darkness of the land, of the situation, the darkness of the people during the days of Isaiah. God's people are in distress. The the text says that they are in the gloom of anguish. And why are God's people in distress? Again, it's because of their faithlessness, because of their sin. One has led to the other, as it always do. And sin leads to distress and to anguish and to vexation. And such is the case in, in that land and at that time. And it's the case in our time, too, isn't it? We can well say of of our world, of our nation, you know, Ichabod, the glory has departed. And though the U.S. is not in the same situation Israel is, the U.S. is not 
Israel. The U.S. is not God's nation. It's a nation. And it's a nation that has, by and large, rejected God. And then, in Israel and Judah, now even here, a time of darkness for a people who have rejected God. And some of that darkness splashes over, as it were, onto God's remnant, His people. And just as then, today, we live, beloved, in a dark world. I don't need to tell you that. One that seems to be getting darker and darker and darker every day. But beloved people of God this morning, remember that God is a gracious God. And He has a plan. He has a remedy for all who sit in darkness. The darkness of their own conceiving, of their own doing. For those who will look outside of themselves for rescue. And in chapter 9 of Isaiah, then, we have a prophecy concerning the dispelling of that darkness. The plan of God that his people might experience post-tenebrous lux, after the darkness, light. To bring light from darkness, to bring joy from despair. That's what this passage is about. And God gives in this passage a promise. In fact, he gives two promises. Promises not of gloom now, not of anguish, not of darkness, but first the promise of a glorious future, and secondly, the promise of a divine gift. And that's the outline for what we're going to look at this morning. First, we see the promise of a glorious future. Notice the contrast here in the opening verse of chapter 9. It says, in the former times, uh, in the earlier times, he brought them into contempt. He brought into contempt uh, this land. Speaking of the pronouncements that we read about in chapter 8, he brought Israel into contempt, humiliating them through military defeat. He brought Tiglath-Pileser, the head of the Assyrian Empire, down upon them. In the former time, he brought contempt. But it says in the latter time, he has made glorious. You say, well, where is that? I don't see the bringing of the glory, the becoming glorious. Well, that's because Isaiah here is, well, he's a prophet. And so he's speaking prophetically of a future event. And very often, Uh, As prophets speak of of these future events, he speaks of what will be in the future with such certainty that he uses the past tense to describe it. The latter time is a time in the future. God making it glorious is a future event. Notice also who is said to be in this situation. It's there in verse 1 as well. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, those are two of the tribes of Israel. And they are situated in in the nation. They are situated in the very northern part of the nation. Right on the border. And if you go up above that border, you'll find Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And being on the border up there, Zebulun and Naphtali kind of lived in a, 
a double darkness. Because they were so close to the, the pagan uh, land of the Assyrian Empire, they were more influenced by that empire and by other outside nations. They're sort of on the, on the edge of the nation. And secondly, when Assyria does come, who's the first ones that they're going to hit? Zebulun and Naphtali. So they were attacked first by Assyria. And so they uh, were the ones who were brought into contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But then Isaiah tells us, there in verse 1, that he has made glorious uh, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. Those are all ways of describing the same area and using those different names, and it's the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And it is, to hook this to what we've been looking at in the past, this is the very area that we have been spending so much time in in our study of Mark's gospel because this is the area where Jesus spent so much time when he came. And that's the important thing. The passage says that while in the past this area, these people sat in great darkness, he says that in the latter time, Later on, that this same area is going to be made glorious. Something's going to happen, which is so certain that he speaks of it as if it already had happened. It is as as certain as if it had happened. But what's going to happen? What blessing is going to come to take this, this area that has been in contempt and turn it around to be glorious? Well, Isaiah says it, will be manifest, that this event will be manifest in several different ways. And he lists them there. The first thing is light. Light. Those uh, are those who walked in darkness, verse 2, will have seen a great light. Who are those who walked in darkness? It is those who refused to answer appropriately the invitation of Isaiah 2.5 that says, Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. They're the ones who chose darkness instead, and so had darkness foisted upon them. They were walking in darkness. But in a wonderful contrast, the future gloriousness of this area is going to be seen with the, the definition or with the description of light. Light is the great enemy of darkness, isn't it? It's the vanquisher of darkness. Darkness cannot exist where light is. Light drives out darkness. And that's one of the the most natural, most easily understood, and one of the most oft-used biblical pictures of the contrast between life and death, between spiritual life and spiritual death, between uh, the absence of, of God's working and blessing and the presence of God's blessing and working. Darkness is death. Light is life. And when would this light come that was able to bring light to this this dark area? To bring immortality to light? When does this happen? When is it fulfilled? Let me read for you from Matthew chapter 4. You don't have to turn here. Matthew chapter 4, this is verses 12 through 16. It says, now when he heard, and that is Jesus, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, 
lived, went and lived, sorry, and after leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And it says, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his opening words, as it were. He says there in in verse 14, it says, He did that, he went to that area, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So Matthew tells us by divine inspiration that by Jesus coming into the area of Galilee and starting his ministry there, that by that, this prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. Christ coming and Christ preaching preaching concerning the kingdom. By that happening, the light is coming to those who walked in darkness. And as Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. John said that he was the light that was coming into the world, didn't he? John 1, 9, he says, and this is the judgment, or that he said he was the light that was coming into the world. Later, he said in John 3, that this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. He came and he dispelled darkness. He conquered the darkness by bringing the light which was himself. And this, Isaiah says, is the future for God's people. The coming of the light of the world. A great light which would shine on them. The second thing here in Isaiah chapter 9 is that this will, be, this will bring about great joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. See, in the coming of the great light, a great joy will follow, Isaiah is saying. You've multiplied the nation. And the nation, when he speaks there about the nation, he's referring to the, the faithful aspect of the nation, the remnant, if you will, that God will have preserved through through the unfaithfulness of the rest of the nation, God is being faithful to them. Uh, through the punishment that he would bring, God continues to have that remnant always that he keeps for himself. God, when he brings the light to the world, is increasing the borders then of God's kingdom. And this great joy is described here in terms of, of harvest and in terms of victory in battle both times of great joy. Verse 3 speaks of the joy at the harvest. When the crop came in, that was a time of rejoicing. They were very reliant upon that, a good harvest then. And joy when they divide the spoil, when a battle was won. Two times of great rejoicing. And he uses that as a picture of this. When Jesus comes some 700 years after this, The proclamation of the angels reflects this. As the angel says, Behold, I bring you good tidings of what? A great joy. 
which shall be for all the people. And the blessing of the Lord, Isaiah says, will manifest itself in light and in joy. From darkness and affliction to light and joy. Next we have the the, the reason for this great joy in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. See, there's a great joy, he's saying, because there's been a great deliverance. God will deliver his people from this gloom, from this distress, from this darkness. Their gloom will not be forever. And God assures that he will deliver them by his strength and not theirs. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, it says, you have broken. Speaking of God, you have broken, he says, as on the day of Midian. Remember Midian? Remember the Midianites? That nation that back in the time of, of judges sorely vexed God's people, would destroy their crops? And you know what God did? Read the story, perhaps. Judges 6 and 7 is the story of the Midianites and of Gideon, whom God used to defeat the Midianites with only an army of 300 people. And what was the purpose of that? To show that God was the one giving the victory. That God was the one winning the battle. And that's what it says here. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This work that will be done, this great thing that will bring light and joy and deliverance is God's work. In fact, look down at the very last phrase of the passage that we read at the end of verse 7. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's God's work. He will bring about victory again. Another reason for the joy that is to come is seen in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Those are all examples of the, the, the trappings of war. And Isaiah says that they will be destined for burning and fuel for the fire. You know what happens, what you get when you burn all of the weapons and all of the boots and all of the uniforms? Or what has happened to cause you to burn all of the boots and the uniforms and the weapons? Peace. And God not only will deliver his people, but in doing so he will bring peace to them. And so light and joy and deliverance and peace is promised. And God will do it. And how is this to be? How is this great oppression to be removed? How is it that this nation in darkness, and even how how are the Gentiles who are in even deeper darkness, how is it that they will see a great light? How is it that these miserable people will have joy and have their joy increased? How could the prophet expect these people who are in anguish to be brought to deliverance? These people who are even now on the brink of invasion and sitting in darkness, which will only get deeper, only get greater. 
in the shadow of the mighty king of the Assyrian Empire? How can this be? How can this great oppression be removed? And the great answer, the climactic answer, the powerful, epic answer to that question of how this can be done is a child. A child. The cause of this coming light, of this coming, com, coming joy, this deliverance and peace is a child. See verse 6. For unto us, or to us, a child is born. And just as we saw in our last three messages, as we saw in the case of the bread that, that God sent, which Christ gave, we saw that, that Christ who gave the bread was also the bread. So here, not only is this child to come the cause of the light, but of course, he is the light. And it is, of course, this child who is born that we want to focus on for the rest of this message this morning. We've seen the promise of a glorious future. Now we want to see this promise of a divine gift because that's where the glorious future comes from. The child to come, the son to come, we read, is given. Does that sound familiar too? Remember what we learned last week, that God has has chosen a people for Christ, that he gave to Christ? Well, here we see that God has given a gift to his people. And guess what that gift is? It's Christ. The child is a gift to God's people, a divine gift. The beginning of verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That gives us more information about this. Given, well, by whom? God, of course. Given to whom? God's people, of course. Those who are oppressed, who are in darkness. And according to the New Testament use that we read and the interpretation of this passage, which is always to be our guide, It is to those who are really under a greater oppression than to Egypt or to Assyria. It is those who are under the great oppression of sin and the great oppressor, the devil. It is they who are in need of comfort, who are in need of deliverance. And who is this child? What child is this? What does the text say about him? First, it says it's a him in a couple of different ways. Uh, It says a child, by the way, in the original, that's put forward in the sentence for emphasis. A child to us is born. But the word that's used here is a word particularly for a male child. And then it's followed up by saying a son is given. So this is to be a male child, a son. That leads to the question, whose son? Well, there are two answers to that, as you know, if you know your Bible. First, this one who is to come is to be the son of David. That's in here. Not explicitly, but look at the middle of verse 6. It says that the government shall be on his shoulders. Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and unrighteousness from this time forth forevermore. It says on the throne of David. It says there will be no end. It says from this time forth and forevermore. Do you remember 2 Samuel 7 and the covenant that God made with David, the promise that God made to David? God's promises went like this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There will be no end to the reign of this king, this descendant of David, the one who will establish this kingdom with justice and with righteousness. The kingdom is perpetual. The kingdom is progressive. Perpetual because it's eternal. He reigns forever on the throne. And progressive because it is increasing. And this is all possible, indeed it's only possible, because this son of David is also, of course, the son of God. Look back at verse 6 again. Another contrast here. The fact that he is born and that he is a son stresses his humanity. But the names or the titles that follow that describe what he will be called, how he will be known, stresses his deity. The titles of this child are such a, I used to say, a balm for our souls, a comfort in our distress, a joy in our sadness. And they are the light which has come to those who sat in darkness He will be called Wonderful Counselor. And that phrase points not merely to an extraordinary counselor, not merely to a counselor who is wonderful, but it's to a counselor who himself is a wonder. The word wonder is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the mighty works of God and to point to the deity of God of of its bearer. So this is not just a a great teacher, a wonderful teacher. He is God. He is a wonder. And he has the ability, the wisdom, to have the government of his kingdom, which is not of this world, to rest on his shoulders and to have it increase forever and ever and ever and ever and never end. On earth, a, a wise king gathers counselors around him to give him counsel and wisdom and assistance in making decisions. But this counselor has no need of that. He himself has all wisdom. He himself has all knowledge. Who has given him direction? Who has given him wisdom? The Bible asks. No one. He has all wisdom. And gives to us his words, which are comfort and truth and salvation. The term also has reference in this context to wisdom as a a strategist. As one who is able to put together, to plan out a wonderful victory for his people and to work that out. That too is part of what it means that this child who is to come will be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll also be called Mighty God. What higher name could be ascribed to anyone? He is mighty God, El Gibor. And as Isaiah's earlier prophecy reveals back in chapter 7, he is mighty God with us. He is Emmanuel, 
And God the Father was pleased, according to Colossians 1.19, for all the, the goodness, all the fullness of the Godhead to dwell in him, in this child who is to come. He is able to rule his kingdom. He is able to uphold it. He is able to establish it with justice and righteousness. And Matthew 4 that we read tells us that, is, that is, this is not just the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of God that he rules over. It is the kingdom of God in Matthew 4 that is at hand, that he brings in. He established it. He rules that kingdom, the kingdom of God. And he is able to deliver his people from sin as he delivered his people from Midian. He is able to defeat, to defeat Satan and death and sin completely. And again, this title here has particular reference to the, to the bringing of joy and the bringing of peace. The title speaks of the power of God, the power of this child to do all of this. El Gabor means God is a warrior. He not only plans as a wonderful counselor, but he executes as a warrior. The promised son, Christ, is the captain of the army of the Lord. He is also called Everlasting Father. Literally, Father of Eternity. It's a single word in the original. And what it's not doing here is it's not confusing Christ with the Father. It's not cre uh, causing or, or, or committing the sin of, of modalism. It's not denying the Trinity. Because the Son is not the Father. So what does it mean? It means that he is to his people a father. He is a protector. He is a leader. He is an instructor. He is a king. And eternally so. So he is our everlasting father. He is our king forever. As he is eternal, his kingdom is eternal. So he is our eternal king. That's what's behind this idea of everlasting father. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Comfort upon comfort we receive from this passage, from these descriptions of this child, joy upon joy, as we have him described here. Hundreds of years before he would come, he brings light, he is the light, he brings joy, he is the joy, he brings deliverance from our sin. In fact, you shall call his name Jesus because he will deliver his people, he will save his people from their sin. And he does this by virtue of the fact that he brings what is so sorely needed. He brings peace. And therefore he is called, finally, the Prince of Peace. Prince and Peace, that's kind of an odd description, really. One, and if you look at these other things, one who is going to expand their territory, one who is going to multiply the nation, one who has said that of the increase of his government that shall, there shall be no end, when we read of all those accomplishments, we would think of a man of war, wouldn't we? Through aggression that it would be done, like the Assyrians who are going to come, like the Babylonians who are going to come. But it's not true of this one, not true of this child, not true of this son. But he rather increases his border, he brings joy, he brings peace, he brings deliverance, he brings all of these things because he brings peace. 
Not peace among families. We know he brings the opposite. Not peace among nations. There's still wars. There's still rumors of wars. In fact, when he's born in Bethlehem, though, the angels will announce him this way, glory to God in the highest and to those with whom he is pleased. What does he bring? Peace. But true peace comes to us because this one is a prince of peace, a prince who brings peace. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He gives peace. Him alone gives peace. Romans 5.1 says that because of him, through him, through the work that he has done, because we are justified by grace, through him we have peace with God. That's the ultimate peace that he brings. And if we would have peace, if you would have your consciences clean before God, your sins forgiven, your relationship with God restored, it is to this child and to this child alone that you must go. And all of this is the promise for those who are in darkness, who walked in darkness, who loved the darkness, who served the darkness. This is the promise for those who lie under the curse of God because of their sins, because of their rebelliousness. This is the promise that is the only hope for mankind. This child who is the only mediator between God and man. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. To us, and more importantly, for us. And he is the light. He is the lux. And he comes post-tenebras, after the darkness, And this light who comes, whom we celebrate, is life. And to that, let us say, Amen. Father, we thank you that you have sent Christ into the world, that he is the light of the world. We thank you that he comes, that that we who were sitting in distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, that for us, we might have that light shine upon us. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in Christ, rejoice in the the celebration of the time when you sent your Son into this world to be the light of this world. And may we rejoice in that light every day. We pray in his name. Amen.